I'm Thanasi Kambanis. This is Order from Ashes. We're talking about the Egyptian Muslim Brotherhood in a special series called Broken Bonds, the existential crisis of Egypt's Muslim Brotherhood, 2013 to 2022. Today, I'm joined by three researchers, Noha Azat, Ahmed Al-Afifi, and Abdulrahman Ayash. The three of them have been researching the Brotherhood, and they've put their their uh, their work together in a really fantastic new book, uh, also called Broken Bonds, which you can find uh, on the Century Foundation's website, tcf.org, how to order it, how to read it. Uh, today, um, and this is the second in a five-part podcast series, we're going to talk to these three researchers about what exactly is the reason uh, to care about uh, what's happened to the Muslim Brotherhood since 2013 when a coup unseated Egypt's first elected president, uh, the Muslim Brotherhood leader, um, uh, Mohamed Morsi, uh, and what the significance of the crises that have plagued the Brotherhood in the decades since then, what the significance of those crises are. Uh, so first of all, I'd like to uh, thank the three of you for uh, your incredible research and your work and uh, for agreeing to come on uh, the Order from Ashes uh, podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Right. It's an absolute pleasure. Thank you, Thanasi. Thank you, Thanasi, very much. So I'd like to, to get us started. Um, I'd like you to lay out uh, for us. So in, in the last episode, we heard a little bit, uh, sort of a, almost a historical scene setter from Ayash, what it was like to grow up. Uh, in the embrace of the brotherhood, in the brotherhood, in a brotherhood community. Uh, but now we're, we're taking a step back and we're thinking about this political, social, religious movement that's been around for almost 100 years uh, that remains maybe the single most important vessel of of alternative politics, uh, uh, alternative to the state uh, in Egypt, and, and which remains a kind of influential bugbear in the, in the international space, but in the region and in the Middle East, as well as internationally, the brotherhood is for some synonymous with Islamist politics to others. It's synonymous with extremism or radicalization. Uh, it's been blamed for a whole host of, of ills and, and benefits. Um, and so I want to start, uh, by asking you, Ahmed, uh, to, to help, to help us frame like what it is we're talking about. What's the what's the question about the brotherhood that's important uh, for us to be thinking about and trying to answer, both as 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 researchers and and people, but also as as uh, as folks who are trying to figure out where uh, where religious politics uh, is going in our world today. Thank you so much for that question, Thanasi. The significance of the Brotherhood is that it's an organization that has withstood a lot more than everyone has in one way or another. The organization is older than a lot of the nation states that uh, it contends with at the moment, and it has outlived a lot of this, a lot of political and social organizations that started with it in the early 1920s. The organization was founded in 1928 by Hassan al-Banna, and almost 100 years later, it still exists. It exists it exists in a state of crisis, but it is, it, or sorry, state of multiple crises that we discuss in the book, but it is still active nonetheless. And one of these reasons and why we should care is that whether we like it or not, uh, they are the largest non-state actor in the region. And uh, being the largest non-state actor in the region, they are able to resemble a type of alternative politics that uh, has a low threshold for people to commit to, so to say, they're not, they don't call for for violence publicly, they don't organize, they're not trying to create, uh, uh, they're not ISIS, uh, so to say. 
so this this organization, uh, I mean, you know, rightly, fairly, and unfairly, and I think you 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 all do a really great job documenting this in your uh, research. Uh, this organization is sort of uh, it has followed a very distinct path to influence and longevity, and in a way, it's singleness of purpose and its rigidity have been one of the reasons why it's managed to survive so many waves of change and, and repression. Uh, and at the same time, it ends up getting connected uh, to all kinds of things for which it is not responsible. And this is one of the questions I, I, I want to float with the three of you uh, uh, here today, because it's it's sort of why, why we care so much about this organization is because uh, uh, people in the region often uh, blame the Muslim Brotherhood for every ilk of religious politics that comes into play. They'll blame it for ISIS. They'll blame it for Al Qaeda. They'll blame it for other uh, other movements, uh, which you know, in some cases, were founded by people who spent some time in the Brotherhood, and in some cases, have not even a passing taxonomical connection. Um, and it has become, uh, I'd say, the litmus test uh, uh, for. Islamist politics. And uh, I guess I want to know uh, from a sort of policymaker perspective, uh, is it like, how should we, how should we think about Egypt's Muslim brotherhood as a harbinger uh, or driver of broader international trends in religious politics? Should we be looking at the brotherhood in the last 10 years and thinking, aha, these are clues to what Islamist religious political movements around the world uh, uh, will be doing or how they will fare uh, when they try to take power or in the aftermath of failed uh, 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 attempts to take power? I think that the Muslim Brotherhood, or we think that the Muslim Brotherhood has been misunderstood in 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 uh, in, in many ways as as a political ideolo ideological or even military organization and studying the muslim brotherhood in also many ways is studying of how autocratic regimes affect social movements and how these movements survive under different regimes and the 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 to study the egyptian muslim brotherhood is not only studying the the, uh, the movement in Egypt, but also we are talking about the mother movement or a mother group for many organizations around the world. Um, the, 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 the ideology of the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt could be... Um, we, we can say that it, 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 uh, it informs a lot of other uh, movements around the world. Uh, and many of whom actually are in, in the Middle East and in uh, in our region. We are talking about Jordan, Tunisia, Palestine, even uh, Turkey, uh, Morocco, uh, and and all, all of the the countries of, of the Middle East and the Arab world, and maybe many countries in Europe and the U.S. Uh, and and around the world as well. The, the, the connection between the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt and uh, the, these organizations, yes, makes it vital for, for, for policymakers to understand uh, the, 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 the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt in order for them to understand many social movements and many uh, Islamic or Islamist uh, uh, 
parties around the world. Yeah, I was going to ask you, Noha, uh, how would you how would you sort of caution people who over sort of over over determine uh, the international uh, or sort of universal dimensions of the brotherhood? Uh, how would you how would you caution them uh, in terms of thinking about this more as an Egyptian or, or you know, Egypt, Egypt specific organization with a sort of contingent Egyptian uh, trajectory? Uh, I think yeah, after after 9/11 specifically, many Islamic movements have been perceived in a way to assess the international implications of their uh, behavior and existence, and especially extremist groups. But I think many Western analysts and policymakers have been busy with the cultural and ideological description of these groups, but not structurally mapping where, what what they really represent in their respective uh, nation states. So, for example, the Brotherhood was much more than ideology or reformism versus conservatism. There were really different interest groups uh, inside the Brotherhood and dissecting where where every one of them stands inside Egypt and how each of them relates to the uh, regime and the Egyptian state would have helped many policymakers, especially in uh, countries who were stakeholders uh, in uh, 2013, before and after like the United States and the European Union. Having a more structural description of the of the of the Brotherhood and the organization and how it embeds itself in Egyptian society would have been much more helpful. Other than the dichotomy of is it a terrorist group or not? Is it an extremist group or not? Like many times, I feel no one is really asking what it really is. People are just obsessed with putting it either in this category or that. So uh, this is part of why we wrote this study. We were trying to map where it really stands and all the contradictions inside it and how this relates to actually the fact that Egypt has not yet developed fully as a modern state. And I think this is one of the many contradictions that uh, many Western uh, policymakers and uh, analysts completely missed. Like many, for example, many people Defend, uh, uh, defended the presence of the Brotherhood as just a civic organization that is uh, sometimes providing services in, in, instead of the state, etc. But this, in a way, sort of um, overlooked the fact that the Brotherhood was actually existing instead of the, the state as we know it in certain marginalized communities. This is something many Western policymakers couldn't uh, conceive of, and this complicated the relation of the Brotherhood with the state, and even complicated the role that the Brotherhood played, like it, it, it played two different contradictory roles in, in, in Egyptian society. It contested the state. It wanted to run elections in syndicates, run elections for student unions, run elections for parliament and presidential office. It mobilized uh, middle classes. It contained uh, uh, um, also... Um, a, a, a sizable segment of the upper class, like businessmen, people like Khairat Shatir, who were wary of uh, state intervention. So those sort of represented more of a neoliberal dimension in the Brotherhood. At the same time, it, it, it included a vast base of uh, members of the lower classes who would push the Brotherhood more into uh, adopting pop, uh, populist policies and they weren't really invested in the state as we as we know it as such like many 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 times when you when you ask members of the brotherhood about official policies that they were going to undertake there were usually contradictory statements from from different members according to which interest group they represented and this confusion didn't really help uh, western policymakers like sometimes it would exacerbate the argument that the Brotherhood was basically double-faced. It was hiding its 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 extremist face when it faced the Western policy maker, but this wasn't exactly accurate. There were just too many tensions, contradictions inside the Brotherhood. 
Yeah, I think this is a, a really important and useful corrective uh, to to the the way we think about this organization. So, like, why is it important? It's important because it it has been around for uh, nearly a hundred years and continues to have following power. Uh, uh, membership, influence, um, and it continues to be really the only uh, ongoing space for politics in Egypt outside of the, what limited politics the the dictatorship, the military dictatorship allows. So, you know, it's, it's you know, like inescapably of consequence. Um, and I think there's been a really, there's been a lot of like unhelpful and, and bordering on stupid uh, discourse about the brotherhood in Egypt, in the region, in the U.S., and broadly in the West, you know, so it's these questions of, is it a terrorist group or is it not? Is it an ideological group or is it a services group? And these are like analytically nonsensical questions, right? I mean, we we wouldn't ask these questions about, you know, uh, Trump's Republican Party uh, or about, you know, any other, in, you know, institutionalized movement that has political, social, and religious power and, and ongoing following. Instead, we would ask more sophisticated questions like the ones you all have in your research, which is, you know, how does this organization exert its influence? Uh, you know, what is causing its influence to wax or wane? Um, how, you know, how, basically, how is this organization performing and what is this organization? How does it map? Um, and I'd, uh, uh, you know, I'd I'd like to ask you, Ahmed, to take a stab at 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 like summarizing. You know what when you when you all all was said and done, and you guys finished you, uh, your your dozens of interviews um, and tried to map uh, both the the sort of power of the Brotherhood and also you tried to document these multiple crises besetting it, which we'll get into in a minute. Um, when you step back and you want to you want to say to like. Uh, a stranger from Mars. What is the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt? Um, affirmatively, how would you how would you summarize it? What would you say it is? That's a really good question, and I think it, I think the Brotherhood is an organization that has a theory for change, and it's one that starts with uh, like reforming of the self and goes through like making sure the family's up to a certain par of. Um, religious education and commitment and then it goes from like family to neighborhood to society to state but the sole objective is not seizing power right it's not uh dominance of the world but rather the sole, the objective is uh, is maintaining a social and political uh, aesthetic if if you may and within that and i think that that sort of description is why for a lot of brotherhood members, for instance, this terbia or rearing or or, or uh, rearing is a good translation of terbia, not perfect, but it, but it's what we have. Is why that was a lot more important than politics, and it gets to what Noha was talking about earlier as to why you have different perceptions, like on big policy questions of what should be done with the economy, what should be done with um, taxation, what should be done with health, uh, because that's not that's not how the organization sees itself. It's not how the organization situates itself within society writ large when you ask members of uh, when you ask like leaders of the organization a former supreme uh, guide uh, Mahdi Akif was once asked how would you define the organization what is the Muslim Brotherhood and he said it was it was a spiritual uh, type type of existence oftentimes what happens though as we discussed earlier is that uh, 
analysts, typically Western analysts or post 9-11 analysts, tend to focus on uh, the Rabbaniya aspect or the Muslim aspect within the title of the Muslim or Brotherhood and not understanding that they are part and parcel of society. A lot of what they're asking of, uh, a lot of the rearing that they're doing is not very far from the median member of uh, of the societies in which they are present. And it's also not very far away uh, from what your uh, good old Joe in Idaho might think is right in the world, but we tend to securitize them in a way that makes them a lot more alien than they actually are. So it's an organization that has a theory for change, but the main goal is not politics. It's maintaining and and, and creating a socio-political or a, a socio-religious aesthetic that they believe uh, is in... Um, that that they believe like will will, will eventually create the uh, best society possible. If not, uh, even if we do not get to this type of ideal society, but the quest for reform and change is is still there. A lot of what makes the Brotherhood different than a good old campaign or a social movement uh, in the traditional sense is that their sense of time and history is a bit longer um, than a campaign or than a social movement. They do not think of themselves in, ter- in like in, in, in election cycles or from um, one short-lived campaign to another. Rather, it's it's a larger historical arc that they see themselves as part of, and that's what gives a lot of meaning to what being a brotherhood or being a uh, being a brother or being a sister within the organization actually means. We're going to take a quick break. I'm Thanasi Kambanis. I'm talking to the authors of Broken Bonds, The Existential Crisis of Egypt's Muslim Brotherhood, 2013 to 2022. Uh, we've got Amr al uh, Noha Azat, and Abdurrahman Ayash on the line uh, talking about their research into Egypt's Muslim Brotherhood and its multiple crises. We'll be right back. Today's world is changing faster than ever. Old rules don't apply and the new rules haven't been written. At least not yet. I'm Rohan Advani, and I produce the Order from Ashes podcast at the Century Foundation, a leading progressive think tank that promotes peace, cooperation, and equality at home and abroad. On Order from Ashes, we try to make sense of a new international system in which America no longer dictates the global order. Join us as we talk to activists and analysts on the front lines of the most pressing issues in international policy. Hi, I'm Thanasi Kambanis. You're listening to Order from Ashes, Century International's podcast. Uh, this is the second episode of Broken Bonds, the existential crisis of Egypt's Muslim Brotherhood 2013 to 2022. I'm speaking with Amir Al-Afifi, Noha Azat, and Abdurrahman Ayash about their research into the Egyptian Muslim Brotherhood, what's happened to it since the coup in Egypt in 2013 when the organization was uh, pushed underground violently, members massacred, tens of thousands now in Egyptian prisons, Others in exile, uh, uh, many scattered uh, and living under a great deal of pressure. Uh, we've been talking before the break about the way in which the Brotherhood uh, exerts a lot of influence around the region and in Egyptian society by dint of its staying power. Uh, and Ahmed was uh, was talking about the way in which also uh, the Brotherhood has unhelpfully been securitized, sort of viewed always through a lens of safety, security, extremism. Um, and I want to turn now to that question, and I want to ask uh, Noha first, and, and then uh, Ayash, uh, this uh, about 
how uh, and why um, the, the Brotherhood, so, so, so let's start in, inside Egypt. How and why is the Brotherhood framed as purely uh, an, an extremist problem by the government uh, rather than as a uh, more complex social, political, and, and, and cultural movement? Uh, I think on behalf of the government, it's definitely for an instrumental reasons. It has to do with the regime security, keeping the pressure on the Brotherhood. I think people in the government know very well that the Brotherhood, for most of Egypt's history, wasn't, at least its post-independence history, it wasn't implicated directly in the major uh, episodes of violence. The, the major episodes of violence were mostly other more extremist groups. But I think keeping the pressure on the on the Brotherhood and stigmatizing it, especially amongst the middle and the upper classes, has been one of the goals of the regime by labeling the uh, Brotherhood as an extremist organization. And the regime knows very well that uh, recruiting members from the middle classes and uh, the upper classes is key for the uh, for the backbone of the organization and the high-ranking members who eventually uh, get to control uh, the different. Uh, departments of the organization. So putting pressure on the middle classes and the upper classes not to join the Brotherhood, stigmatizing it, telling them that there is a hefty uh, security price for it, like going to prison, uh, uh, etc. So I think this is basically the goal of the regime. I don't think people in the regime really believe it's a, it's a terrorist organization. And um, this has been obvious in the, in the two years between 2011 and 2013, that like the government never, ever would have considered a reconciliation with Al-Qaeda, for instance, or the uh, violent extremists who assassinated Sadat, for example, in 1981. Only when they did uh, uh, revisions and uh, renounced violence in 1998 did the government allow them to continue their social um, social activities in Upper Egypt. But for the Brotherhood, things are different. Like the relation keeps going up and down, which means that they really aren't uh, uh, a terrorist organization, even from the perspective of the government. But the label itself is, of course, uh, politically employed by the regime when it uh, when it uh, wants to uh, intensify pressure uh, on the on the organization. No, what have we learned from the experience inside Egypt? So, in the you know, let's say eight eight years or nine years that you've really taking a close look at in this, in this research project of, of, uh, the organization when it got pushed underground and into prison, um, did it in fact follow the sort of deterministic path that like, uh, counterterrorism scholars. So, I mean, I use the term loosely. I don't really think of counterterrorism as a real discipline. So I, I sort of in scare quotes call them scholars, but you know, there's the sort of counterterrorism framing and this, uh, thesis that when you repress uh, uh, people, they turn to extremism or to violence. Um, so, you know, we have now observations over a long period of time. Has repression uh, created a a new wave of violent radicalization, uh, or does does the evidence actually uh, uh, point to the the uselessness? Of 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 trying to sort of trying to reductively cram uh, study of a movement like the Muslim Brotherhood into this kind of securitized counterterrorism framework. Um, I think repression uh, leads to extremism is a very broad and uh, generic argument, and I think it becomes problematic not because it's either right or wrong. It just depends on the different type of interest groups and how they are situated in their respective societies. Like what we've learned from the Brotherhood is the exact opposite. Like the main backbone of the organization, which is members of the upper and the middle class, as, as we've seen, despite the intense repression in the 1960s and after 2013, most of them have 
largely stayed away from uh, violent interpretations of uh, the uh, uh, classical Islamic religious texts and so on. And many of them even renounced uh, Said Qutb, who is the uh, ideologue usually accused of being uh, the one who introduced more extremist and radical um, versions of uh, Islamic thought into the uh, organization. So I think it really depends. I think what we've learned in the past uh, few years or in the past decade is there are two contradictory um, sides the, the organization. As I said, the middle class members and the upper class members are those who form the, uh, the structure of power in the Brotherhood as an organization. They are really invested in it and uh, they don't even have the instrumental capacity to initiate violence uh, against the state. To, to a large extent, and at the same time, which is a contradictory um, uh, finding, the the very the, like the supporters of the organization, those who were mostly members of the lower or the low, or the lower middle class, whose relation to the brotherhood was very loose, they were sympathizers, they were they were just uh, supporters. They weren't really um, directly benefiting from the. Um, uh, from the uh, from membership in the Brotherhood are the one who are more prone to be attracted to uh, violence and to leave the Brotherhood and join more extremist groups. And there are instances where several uh, low-key members actually joined um, um, militias in Syria, for, uh, for instance. So I think it really depends which which type of interest group got to suffer uh, uh, repression and and I think how it behaves doesn't either validate or, or invalidate the statement that repression uh, leads to extremism. I think each each interest group needs to be analyzed on its own and um, and to really understand the institutional choices that it makes. Like why does it resort to uh, extremism? Does it have to do with the intensity of the repression or uh, the looseness of how attached it is to uh, the authority of the of, of the brotherhood, or is, this, or is it the geographical location, for instance? Sure, and and in this and in this study, you document you know multiple trajectories, right? Under under the same types of pressure, some some members quit the organization entirely, some become uh, quite mod moderated and and sort of mainstream in their approach. Others uh, advocated uh, uh, you know violence. So there's you know multiple multiple responses uh, to this kind of force and pressure. Uh, Ayash, I want to ask you. Um, uh, you know, during the period of the Brotherhood in power, that year that Morsi was president, uh, there was a lot, there were a lot of missteps, a lot of rigidity. Um, there really didn't seem to be a ton of, uh, uh, wisdom on the part of the Brotherhood in, in, in terms of thinking about, uh, minority rights or pluralism or due process uh, once, once they were in power. And I'm wondering in your study of the Brotherhood since, so, you know, since this catastrophic setback uh, in 2013 and the great amount of suffering that, that's happened since then, has the organization internalized any kind of discourse about rights and and due process and inclusivity uh, that would um, make it think differently about power and governance uh, if and when it sort of comes out of the wilderness and gets back in a position of being able to contest uh, uh, power and play a direct role in, in politics? Yeah. Uh, so actually, as, as you said, in 2012 and, and 2013, yeah, the, the, the Muslim Brotherhood had um, major problems actually with the society and with their own base even uh, in, in Egypt. Uh, but 
Recently, I think there are different factors that are um, pushing the Muslim Brotherhood in uh, either direction, whether to self-criticize and and uh, promote uh, more progressive ideas regarding rights and minorities and uh, uh, and other issues, or even um, more aggressive uh, uh, trend. So I think. I think one of these factors is where the Muslim Brotherhood are based, for example. So the personal experiences of the members of the Muslim Brotherhood in different countries, they truly affect their 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 uh, stances uh, towards different issues. Uh, people in, in, in the UK or in London, for example, where the, the, the leadership of the Muslim Brotherhood uh, was based for the last few years. Uh, they, they think differently from people who were based in, in Arab Gulf or, or in, in, uh, in Southeast Asia, for example, and uh, and of course in Turkey. So I, I think the, the, these developments and these uh, interactions with uh, with the societies they are in and with the political context they are in, I think it will uh, they, they will prove influential in, in the future thinking of the Muslim Brotherhood. But I think it's it's important here to note that. The Muslim Brotherhood, in many ways, I mean, especially uh, individually speaking, the members of the Muslim Brotherhood, they are now being part of human rights organizations, for example. I mean, uh, we were just counting the other day the the the, the numbers of the number of human rights organizations in Turkey that are related to the Muslim Brotherhood. There are at least five or six of them, and and the, the, many of them they have very or most of them they have very progressive. Uh, uh, thinking about about human rights in general, and uh, they are not only defending the Muslim Brotherhood prisoners, for example, and and they are trying to uh, uh, to sympathize or to show uh, understanding of of uh, other rights issues as well. And and in terms of the media, I think the Muslim Brotherhood has been learning the hard way. Uh, for example, the the the, the uh, in, in, uh, in the media, for example, the Muslim Brotherhood has been making huge mistakes uh, in, in their uh, narrative and in in how to talk to the Egyptian people and how to talk to the, the, their base and also to the, the government. And they have been learning the hard way. Uh, so I, I, I think that, that there are uh, changes, there are developments in, in, uh, in, in the thinking of the Muslim Brotherhood. But... Thanasi, to be honest, there will not be a real change without an open political uh, an, an open political space, and and the, the, this is and, and the year of the Muslim Brotherhood. It was only a year, and and yeah, we we, we could describe the Muslim Brotherhood. I don't know if if you want to think uh, on on the polity index, for example. Yeah, may, maybe the Muslim Brotherhood could be uh, described as leaning towards authoritarian being being an authoritarian regime, but. What what we what we have been facing in in Egypt or in many other Arab countries actually, including the Arab Spring countries, is uh, uh, the the religion being uh, imposed and being used by the governments to uh, to 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 repress people to uh, uh, to to put more pressure on on uh, on their societies and in the on political forces uh, in their societies w w without the ability for any uh, group and or any societal group to emerge or to learn from from the political interaction or from uh, from 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 an open political space and social space so uh, or civic space yeah, I think 
this is one important thing to talk about. Yeah, and 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 uh, and you know, your work shows something that that I think has has been clear for some time, which is that you know the Egyptian Muslim Brotherhood is an authentically Egyptian organization which reflects its context. Uh, so, like like the state, like uh, civic or or quasi secular organizations in Egypt. Uh, across the board, Egyptian political organizations tend to be pretty conservative, uh, not heavily invested in uh, due process and, and, and rights and, and, and pluralistic decision making. So the Brotherhood is essentially no no more illiberal than uh, you know the pro military ruling establishment uh, or even the the so called liberals who who haven't proved that liberal at all in in terms of what kind of political systems uh, they've supported. Um, and I do think one of the really important insights I've gained from reading your work, the three of you's research, uh, is sort of like demythologizing and removing this whole discourse about like religion and ideology from an analysis of the brotherhood entirely. Because, uh, you know, in a context in which uh, Islam and Islamism are invoked by almost everybody, these are not, it's, it's just simply not an explanatory factor. Uh, people who join the Brotherhood aren't joining it because it's an Islamist organization. Uh, they're choosing among a whole raft of alternatives uh, from political disengagement to, to, to various uh, uh, outlets for, for politics, almost all of which have some, you know, some flavor of Islamism. Um, Islamism isn't what defines the groups and what distinguishes them. Uh, in the Brotherhood's case, what what you all have shown is that the Brotherhood uh, has persisted because of these sort of sociological organizational factors, uh, which have given it staying power and which have also made it very insular, uh, very uh, resistant to change, even when demanded by its own members. Um, and that ultimately is it almost guarantees that it will survive and rebound from this current uh, period of repression. And as I read your work, yeah, uh, it also suggests that it will come out having learned very little, you know, the sort of the survival skills and the built-in uh, institutional reasons why it persists are exactly the same reasons why uh, uh, five, 10 years from now, the brotherhood is unlikely to have uh, in any major way transformed itself as an organization uh, uh, in the way it functions and in the way it mobilizes. Uh, so in, in closing uh, uh, this episode of, of Broken Bonds, Ahmed, I just want to turn to you um, and, and ask, you know, you know, give us uh, a, a quick, a quick, very quick overview of what these three crises are uh, that we're going to be hearing about uh, in the next three episodes of this podcast series. Thank you so much, Lanassi. I just want to pick up where you left off in your interjection. And even if it is the case uh, that, or as it is the case, uh, in fact, that the Brotherhood has learned very little, I hope that us as researchers and policymakers have actually have learned a lot. The way that we problematize the, the uh, Muslim Brotherhood is not how they problematize themselves at all. And the way that we've problematized it, or that policymakers have problematized it, rather, has led to severe injustices and more importantly perhaps inaccuracies in how we understand politics and and uh autocracy in the region uh, as a whole 
the crises that we talk about moving on from this security oriented approach moving on from this like 20 years after the war on terror moving on from this uh paradigm that has been very modest in its intellectual contribution we find that there this are three failed. main crises uh, let, let me restate that a little more emphatically this obsession with security and with talking about movements like the Muslim Brotherhood uh, as if Islam and Islamism have some kind of fixed definition and explain every security problem we've ever had is a failed approach. It's like, it's wrong, it's racist, it's reductionist, and it's not useful. And it's been sort of discredited clearly by the complexity with which events have played have played out. So I, I just want to more more firmly restate what what I think you you were uh, getting at in your comment. So go on. What are what Absolutely. are what, and, what are those three? And crises? as we move on from this like old uh, vocabulary of understanding these organizations, the new vocabulary we're proposing is thinking about this as an organization and putting our like. Uh, uh, Putting, our, putting ourselves in the shoes of these members and trying to understand what they're facing and what the organization is dealing with. And there are three main crises that we see in the organization uh, in the last uh, decade or so that we focus on. First of all, an identity crisis. And this has historical roots in the sense that the organization has not been able to find a positive definition of what it is and what it does. It does politics. It does religious education. It does societal work. It does public uh, pub public goods work. You a member of the organization can help uh, help your sick child they can bring you uh bread and uh uh gas when 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 they're when they're running short in in your home they'll help you with your kids homework they'll help you when you're an undergrad struggling for for notes and food and they'll help you when you're trying to run an office an organization cannot do all of that it's been able to do all of that because it's had to adapt under different waves of repression and they have a large enough base and the state let them do that but they haven't been this this what made it successful in one period of time historically is now contributing to its uh, crises and its uh, potential demise so that's the identity uh, crisis within the brotherhood the legitimacy crisis within the brotherhood is that it's the brotherhood is an organization that continues to operate under uh, different waves of autocratic repression and since its inception uh, onwards. And this has meant that the way that leadership works and leaders are uh, sort of like promoted, uh, ranked or sacked out of the organization has had to do a lot with trust and a lot with uh, sort of like there aren't strict bylaws. It's a very patriarchal type of organization uh, in which uh, Trust and networks count for a lot more than uh, professionalism, so to say. And a lot of this, this trust has to do with how much you've sacrificed for the organization. So we see a lot of ordeal-based legitimacies that have for, for people who have sacrificed or who were in hiding or who people who spent years upon years in prison in the, six, in the 50s, in the 60s, in the 90s, and the 80s and onwards. Um, and this legitimacy crisis has caught up with the organization when you have people now who are in their uh, late mid to late 20s or in their early 30s who in the last decade have spent have endured some of the same uh, types of repression that people who have spent decades in the organization on. So you have people who are like, as far as their ordeal-based legitimacies, they're quite the same, but as far as their ranking within the organization, it's very different. And you don't want to create an instance in which you have the legitimacy of uh, the repression in 65 and the legitimacy of repression in 2013. And that's what we have. Uh, CC effectively created a new 
type of, of Rabah-based legitimacy as opposed to a 95 and Nasser-based legitimacy. And finally, the membership crisis that we're talking, that we discuss in the book is a manifestation of both of these. What happens when the organization does, is failing to contribute to, to or to have a positive definition of what it is and what uh, and what should be doing in society and in which a lot of these patriarchal structures in which um, the, the organization has been able to sustain itself are no longer valid in exile or no longer represent what they did to a new uh, cohort of uh, of members. The retention and recruitment mechanisms that the uh, organization has established from 28 onwards, from 1928 onwards, are failing both the organization and the members themselves. And that's what we try to highlight in the book. So that's three crises. Crisis of identity, crisis of legitimacy and a crisis of membership. Uh, thank you so much, the three of you for, uh, for joining, um, uh, this podcast. Uh, this is the second episode of broken bonds, the existential crisis of Egypt's Muslim brotherhood, 2013 to 2022. The next episode, uh, I'll be talking with Noha Izat about the identity crisis, uh, and, uh, uh, and then there's going to be two more episodes, uh, Ayash, talking about the legitimacy crisis. And finally, Ahmed uh, finishing off with uh, a deeper look at the membership crisis. Taken all together, this is a really bold new way of understanding the Egyptian Muslim Brotherhood. Uh, I think it's critical for our understanding of the Brotherhood, of Egyptian politics. And really, uh, I think it's a necessary uh, and, and, and fascinating corrective to how we think about and talk about Islamist politics in general. Uh, so thank you so much, the three of you, for your work. Uh, I've been talking with uh, Amir Al-Afifi, Noha Izat, and Abdurrahman Ayash the authors of Broken Bonds. Uh, you can find their uh, work, a uh, way to order the book or read it at the Century Foundation's website, tcf.org. Also, uh, there should be a link in the episode notes. Uh, thank you so much uh, for joining us, the three of you. Uh, and uh, thank you for listening. Until next time, I'm Thanasi Kambanis. You're listening to Century International's podcast, Order from Ashes. The Order from Ashes podcast has been brought to you by Century International. Our work builds on more than 100 years of commitment to international peace, security, and governance at the Century Foundation. We are independent, critical, and progressive. For more information about Century International's work, please visit tcf.org or follow us on Twitter and Facebook. We depend on audience feedback to reach new listeners. If you like what you hear, please leave a review wherever you get your podcasts.